Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode 96 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, joined as ever by his own sports journalist, Liam Happ. Hello, Liam. How are you doing, my friend? Ah, polite and rather simple as well. You always leave me guessing with these intros, but I am doing rather well. Oh, so uh, I thought that was just a description of me, polite and rather simple. Ah, uh, no comment. Okay. Absolutely no comment on that. It's, it's too easy. Low-hanging fruit. Next yeah. question. Um, I'm good, Dean. How are you? Well, I think the default answer at the moment is tired. Uh, but other than that, yeah, all good. Enjoying the uh, the European Championships. Uh, but we, we must stop talking about football. We keep talking about football. But then the, the fixtures for next season have been released. And the last game of the season, this coming football season, is the Because WCW Derby of Ipswich v Charlton. Indeed. You love going on about that fixture whenever it happens on here. And I'd like to think that some of our American fans in, you know, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, parts unknown, uh, have become Ipswich or Charlton fans as a result of that. I'd like to believe that. I, I hear that Ipswich have got a big following in parts unknown these days. They're, they're located in parts unknown, technically. I mean, come on. Look at the state of that part of the country. Sorry for anyone from there who's listening. Or am I? So um, today, 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 we we are we are doing a, it's a different kind of episode, Liam. It is. It's a bit of a, in a way, it's new, and in another way, it's a bit of a throwback because yeah. you and I are gonna do the old review of a show without a guest, which, believe it or not, uh, relatively new listeners, was how we started this. Then we decided it'd be fun to bring on some guests, and we got some cracking guests, so it's definitely worthwhile. But here we are, while we're trying to still line some things up, because I appreciate everyone's uh, slowly getting back to normal and they're not as available as they were during, say, I don't know, the golden age of podcasting. Golden age, yeah. So while we are still trying to make things happen on the guest front, we figured rather than do a string of Nitro watch-alongs all in a row, and don't get me wrong, that could be quite good given where we're at with it, just after Bash of the Beach 96, but instead, we'll bring back the Clash of the Champions. We did our first one at the top of this year, didn't we, Dean? And we had yeah, a guest for Joel it. Joel Ross. Yeah? yeah. But this time we'll do it, just you and I, and we'll go back to those first, you know, those first, what, 10 episodes where it was me and you doing a pay-per-view, the dream team, the good old days. But this time, of course, the sound quality is hopefully going to be a bit better. Allegedly, yes. So we uh, we had um, we had a, a clash to to choose. So the the first one we did was the epic Clash Seventeen, which I kind of uh, heavily hinted at to get Joel to do. So it was over to you to choose this one. And which one have you chosen? 
Ah, oh, those days when we, you and I get to pick things. Oh, um, yeah, th this is a personal favourite of mine, and we'll go through the exact reasons why. But I think any dedicated long-term WCW fans will fondly remember this as a pretty pivotal one. We're going back to uh, January of 1993. Very early in the year, if I remember correctly. January the 13th. Ah, less than two weeks into that new year for Clash of the Champions 22. Clash 22. Yeah. The Thunder Cage. We've got a Thunder Cage. And this is what I love about this advertised main event, right? Um, it's... Uh, it's a Thunder Cage match. It's a it's advertised as a eight man tag. It's you know it's a multi man tag inside the cage with various feuds being smushed together for the sake mm -hmm. of this. And because that's not enough, it's also a come as you are street fight in a cage. Yep, because like street fight kind of means it can go anywhere. And cage match means it stays in the cage. Absolutely. So, yeah. But I do kind of yeah. like the the marrying of these because it does make it seem like just, you know, you have your big matches for the championship. And we've got Super Bowl three, which we've already reviewed. Great review. Check that out in our mm -hmm. archives. Um, we've got that on the chronological timeline. That's coming up the following month. That's going to be the big pay-per-view with the title matches and the individual score set. That's fair enough. So, as I've always championed, for these um, things like clashes and like things like episodes of Dynamite and In Your Houses, you kind of want to have a, you want to offer like a big main event without actually finishing up your feuds yeah. that you want to put in the big pay-per-view. So, so, in theory, this is a, for me, this is like a good way to, to do that and you're, and you're offering it as a, you know, you know, come as you are, street fight with a cage, it's, it's all, it's going to be one massive brawl it's it's clearly going to be something big even though it doesn't actually finish the individual uh instances but what makes it a yeah. little bit weird is that okay you want to combine street fighting cage you can do that what's that you want to make you want to enforce tags okay i mean i'll save some of the good stuff for when we get to the main event we've got a whole show to cover but but yeah that, that's the main event we're looking at and uh and do you know how most of these you, you know, a lot of times uh, Survivor Series is a great time for this, where they give the, uh, even if it's just a, a makeshift bunch of guys teaming together for a common cause, they'll give them like a team name sometimes. Yeah. Um, that doesn't really seem to be the case here, but that doesn't stop the narrator on the introduction. Oh, God, yes. From referring to Vader's team as, and I quote, the evil team. The evil team. Yeah, they really did call them that. Which the I'm a huge fan team. of. Yeah, so it's the the uh, the evil team of Big Van Vader, Barry Windham, the Barbarian, and Paul Orndorff. And then it's just the team of Sting, Ron Simmons, Dustin Rhodes, and, and Van Hammer. And I'm, I'm disappointed that they're not the, the good team, the fair team, or the heroic team. They're just the team. Yeah, I mean, we can conclude that they're not evil because there's no evil in their name, so they must be good, right? But I don't want I anyone... So, yeah. yeah, I just don't want anyone to be complaining about the fact that you've got, you know, Sting, big-time star, uh, Ron Simmons just held the world title, big-time star, Dustin Rhodes, big name rising through the ranks, you know, he's, he's obviously got big 
big things coming for him. And then on on the side, you've also got heavy metal Van Hammer. Don't people saying, oh yeah, this this guy isn't worthy to be on the team? Because I just hey. have to remind you that he is a Starcade main eventer. I was just about to say he's <laughs> in another main event. Three, yeah, two two big shows, two main events for yes. Van Hammer. Starcade main eventer. And as soon as they stopped main eventing him, the uh, the the company started to go downhill. They had to hire Hulk Hogan and cater to all of his contract demands just to save the company. <laughs> Hulk Hogan's contract demands led to the company's demise. And as a result, because they stopped pushing Van Hammer, WCW ceased to exist in March of 2001. Prove me wrong. I mean, I can't prove you wrong. You're, you're oh, just going to snort in derision, aren't you? Yeah, I can just snort in derision, but that's not proving anything. That is me merely conveying an opinion. Um, also, it's worth mentioning that the uh, unified world tag team champions, Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas, are defending against the as-yet-unnamed Hollywood Blondes team of Brian Pillman and Steve Austin. They're the two the two matches after. And it's worth pointing out as well. You know, I mean, we're talking about the fact that you know, we're doing Nitro reviews and stuff now. Nitro you know, comes two and a half years later. But at this point in time, TV was by and large squash matches with maybe, if you're lucky, the occasional feature match in the main event featuring some real you know, opening to mid-carders. So even though it was in, in a, what was advertised here at least as a four-on-four cage match, the fact that you are seeing stars facing stars rather than jobbers makes it a big deal and that's what these clashes were they, these clashes were basically wcw's equivalent of, of saturday night main event weren't they yeah they've they've got this model and we saw it later on in the timeline within your houses as well uh and there's been a few other examples throughout time i remember tna uh had monthly pay-per-views and then tried to switch back to that model and I'm guessing they switched away from monthly pay-per-views for financial reasons, but from a from a tracking the the company perspective, I think they did themselves some damage by switching from monthly pay-per-views because that's just where where we were at that point. Or maybe you just don't charge every month; you charge for the big ones, but you still got how you want the big branding of the shows. And yeah. with WCW, they've got Clash of Champions was well branded. It ran its course in '97, but you know what a Clash is. It's got its branding. Saturday night's main event, another great example. And in your house stuff, I mean, if you don't think that wasn't well enough branded, look look at the comeback now on NXT. Everyone's you know, the diehards are all giddy over it. So it clearly served its purpose as in, in establishing a monthly model of big shows. Yeah, and and as you say, Clash of the Champions by 97, it had run its course because, by and large, Nitro had taken over the mantle of Clash of the Champions in that you you had feature matchups, you had title changes, you had it all happening on Nitro. So, yeah, there was no need for, for the Clash any longer. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I think AEW have done a really good job. I know not everyone's cup of tea, but I think they've done a really good job of figuring out the balance because obviously they only do a few pay-per-views a year. Mm. But I really like how they have set up certain main events on episodes of Dynamite. And sometimes I actually, I think I actually prefer watching Dynamite when they're not 
build into a pay-per-view. It gets a little bit humdrum at times as they build into it, and sometimes they they struggle with the timing, the hype right, and it's like three weeks yeah. out from a pay-per-view. It's like, well, what are the matches and stuff like that? But uh, when they build to stuff like Arcade Anarchy and you know some of the other big main events, they've yeah, had they've on... done Bash at the Beach, haven't they, and mm. things like that, yeah. And they've had some cracking to it, and they've really built to it, and it feels like an event unto itself. So it's a good model. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Okay, so uh, this show we kick off with Tony Schiavone. And of course, fucking Bill Watts has to be there, has to get on the microphone. And he immediately talks about himself and who he wrestled when he worked in Milwaukee. Um... But then he does also announce that Van Hammer had surgery on a torn muscle and is out of the show. Um, he was scheduled to be in an arm wrestling contest. So they don't even mention the Thunder Cage. They're just saying that he was meant to be arm wrestling against Tony Atlas and his place will now be taken by Vinnie Vegas. Um, Shivani also mentions that Bill Watts' son, Eric, had an altercation with Arn Anderson where Eric got himself arrested. Watts says that he has suspended Eric pending investigation um, and Eric is so suspended that he's actually backstage with Larry Zabisco. Um, he's wearing, well, it's a horrendous shirt that has pictures of other shirts on it. So I believe, as the kids say, it's a bit meta. Um, and he then just fails to string a coherent sentence together, ending his promo by saying, and I quote, I'm going to be able, make sure my next opponent... I know what's coming at me. Brilliant. Yeah, this uh, this interview was terrible. I mean, you know, if you can't wrestle that well, fair enough. You need to, you know, that's something you learn. But if you can't wrestle very well, at least be able to talk. At least or, be able to string a sentence together. Or, Dean, if you can't wrestle and you can't talk, at the very least, for the love of God, be related to the booker. Or retire, I was going to say. But yeah, be related to the booker. That'll do. That will skip do. the other ones if you got that. Yes. Um, so yeah, he was scheduled to face Cactus Jack, um, and his place will now be taken by Johnny B. Bad, which sounds like a much better option. Um, we then go down to ringside because obviously WCW can't just get on with the matches. Um, and our commentators are Jim Ross and Jesse the Body Ventura. Ross then says that Sting's team in the Thunder Cage is now down to three men and they have a three on four disadvantage. Um, and I've got to mention, Jesse is wearing a spectacular white jacket with black sequins patterned into the collar lapel and cuffs and I just looked at that and thought it looked magnificent <laughs> well at least at, at least we know that they're commentating and not Shivani and Watts this is true yes <laughs> so match number one is as we just said Cactus Jack v John B. Bad Cactus comes out to his awful WCW Slam Jam music music even which wasn't a patch on his original intimidating heel music um bad comes out to his wcw slam jam music but that's a much better track it kind of fits him and suits him a lot better um we get a recap from starcade 92 where these two teamed up and didn't coexist very well in the lethal lottery um bad ends up punching cactus and cactus got pinned for the win or for the, for the win for the other team, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Ventura mentions that there's a lot of Cactus Jack signs in the crowd, and he certainly gets a few cheers coming out. Um, and, and when he does his bang-bang motion, he gets a lot of cheers from the crowd for that. Um, 
So uh, after an initial advantage, Bad lands a traditional WCW babyface arm drag and arm bar. The commentators say uh, how he needs to. Sorry, the commentators say about how he needs to wrestle because Cactus will want to brawl. Um, Bad then goes up to the top rope and spectacularly misses his top rope sunset flip. Cactus lands a big elbow drop immediately afterwards and gets the pinfall pretty much out of nowhere for the win in just two minutes and 50 seconds. Um, And the clean win gets another good pop from the crowd. Now, um, it will become obvious later on why Cactus has a very, very short match here. But, um, yeah, it was a bit out of nowhere. But the, the highlight for me was the reactions from the crowd he was getting. Yeah, and this is this is an absolutely staggering example of WCW starting off her shows. Um, what you like to call the art of the opener, Dean. I think for WCW, we have to figure out what what is the opposite of art. The bleh of the opener. <laughs> the no. mess. The, yeah. yeah, because that that is one thing they have turned into an art form is is screwing up the opener. First off, as we said about the Bill Watts crap, right? And I say about this on every show almost now. You've you've just introduced the big show. You've got a, a live ticket paying excited audience in there. You've just officially gone, Oh, this is the show, welcome and you're gonna talk for God knows how long and then cut to an interview backstage. Um in modern times there's a much higher ratio of shows doing the big intro and then getting the first act straight out there to, to feed Ooh. on that on that excitement. Um, but the thing is, is this really shouldn't be a thing of, oh, back in the day, they didn't know that. Because this is common fucking sense. You know, they, they, they should have been they should have been having the first act of a show coming out back when we still had to rely on leeches for medical technology. This is <laughs> this is a no brainer. And yet we've insisted on having all this self-indulgent what's talk talking. No one cares about Bill Eric Watts. Well, Bill wants us, let's face it. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the only opinion that matters in this time frame. But uh, to make matters worse, we have, and and, and I'm going to explain this now, because as you've gone through literally at face value what's been presented to us now, don't blame for doing that. I'm going to explain the context that hasn't been picked up upon yet by the, uh, the announcers is Cactus Jack just turned face. He has just had a big television angle in which he has turned face and been assaulted by a bunch of other heels. Uh, and they do recap it later on the show and we get more context. But we've just had him come out here and, and you've got things like Jesse's saying, oh, look, there's, there's a few Cactus Jack fans when they should be, you know, playing into it and cluing us in. Well, if you're watching you see, on TV. I would disagree. I, I, think, I think that... The, the final the final statement of his face turn happens later on this show. I think what we've had previously is just him, yeah, him getting beaten up by a bunch of heels, which we'll, we'll see later on. Um, but I think, I, I mean, I I think this is this is like the the, the closing act of of that turn, but he hasn't quite officially done it yet. But here's the thing. I, I mean, I know they're going big on shoving slam jam oh slam jam volume one by the way from yes now on, from now on when we refer to that album we refer to that album a lot on this show let's face it but we need to refer to it by its proper album title slam jam volume one because at the time of release wcw actually assumed there would be more future volumes of this garbage i'm um, still waiting Lee. i haven't given up hope yet 
we should start that petition. Bring us Slam Jam Volume Two. Volume Two, yeah. And we should go for it. But obviously, I know they're churning out the the pluggage for this album. But one of the other reasons they've switched from the admittedly, you're right, the awesome funeral march, is because it's not going to fit him going forward. He needs something yeah. a bit more. I know this is it's a, it's a mediocre generic track, but it does suit a bit more the whole thing of you know he's 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 a loose cannon he's a wild card but he's you know you can cheer for him he's lovable don't be intimidated just uh enjoy him pulverizing the other guy for a change so yeah so you've really got this you've got all the you know the the crowd are clearly a bit more clued in with the pops and all that, and they're acknowledging it like five minutes later. You might as well acknowledge it here. You don't have to talk like he's the hero that's going to save the day, but you're absolutely noting what has happened on your own TV show. You might as well run the clip before this match because this match is this match regardless. Um, although this that does beg me the question: if this was going to be Cactus Jack Eric Watts, I haven't looked up the inside stuff for this show Dave uh, Dean but so I was going to say I haven't looked up the inside stuff such as Dave Meltzer rather than actually calling you Dave Meltzer (laughs) Um, so I'm not sure why this switch was made but I can only assume that if they've they've advertised Cactus versus Watts and then they've run with this angle they're probably thinking well what little hopes he's got of getting over as a babyface Eric Watts is, is going to die a painful death if we stick him out there opposite Cactus Jack. When, but on the when... other hand, if you want people to cheer Cactus Jack, stick him in the ring with Eric Watts. Job done. Yeah, well, he got the cheers anyway. But uh, yeah. yeah, if they're still holding a candle for Eric Watts push, I'm wondering if he was substituted that just to just to avoid a very embarrassing situation. You know, the sort of situation that WWE would run headfirst into without giving a hoot for several WrestleMania main events when it comes to certain top stars of theirs. But, uh, but in this day, they were more conscious about protecting, mostly because they had competition to run them close. Yeah. Um, so we go back to Tony Schiavone, who reports that the great Mutar beat Masahiro Chono at well, what what became the traditional January the fourth show. This was actually the very first January the fourth show at Tokyo Dome, um, and he has become the new NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Um, he he held the IWGP title at the same time as well. That one wasn't mentioned, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that was uh, so. So, do you remember the the awful match that they had uh, at Starcade '92? And then, yeah, a week or so later, the title change happens. And then, now, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts because we now have the two Cold Scorpio music video. Um, and I vaguely remember this being shown on ITV on Saturday afternoon back in the day, but I didn't remember it like this. It is. I think it's fair to say it's the most badly acted, worst produced video I've ever seen in my life. Um, and and I say that with a heavy heart because I've worked a few times with Two Cold Scorpio and he is genuinely one of the nicest men you'll ever meet in your life. Um, so basically, some kids are playing basketball in, in a cold, wet playground uh, when a limo pulls up. Two cold Scorpios in the limo accompanied by two women for no apparent reason who are sticking their heads out of the sunroof. Um, He then admonishes the kids for not being in school and says he'll take them to school himself. And when the kids ask if they're going to ride in the limo, he says, no, 
they're going to step to school, which apparently means you'll do some sort of dance combined with a penguin walk. Um, it, it basically, if you've ever been to the zoo and watched it where they do the penguin parade, where the penguins walk around the zoo before going back in the enclosure, it's something akin to this. Um, and this dance would appear to be such a slow mode of transport that I reckon it'll be about three o'clock by the time the kids actually arrive. Um, so then we see Scorpio and his two girls try to look cool by dancing through puddles of rain in a dingy looking playground interspersed with clips of him wrestling. I mean, they surely could have waited until they like got to Florida or somewhere rather than this is blatantly Atlanta um, and just had a bit of decent weather. But I do think this is one of the most WCW things I've ever seen, Liam. Yeah, you say it's the, the, the weirdest thing you've ever seen. I mean, just the fact that it's the weirdest thing those that we've ever produced is quite the accomplishment. Because yeah. this is the company that gave us the um, the Halloween Havoc 1993 intro video with Tony Schiavone. Yep, the, the, thought... uh, the Yeti that was dressed as a mummy, not a Yeti. Yeah. The, uh... Sorry, Yeti. Transporting Hulk Hogan to Dungeon of Doom headquarters. Mm-hmm. which is what I like to refer to it as, rather than their lair, it's headquarters, you know. If you step out of that cave where they all lurk, you see it's like a skyscraper building and you need a pass to get in. It's a Dungeon of Doom headquarters, you know, headed by Kevin Sullivan Esquire. Yep. Um, of course, the famous spin the deal, spin the wheel, make the deal, sorry, uh, mini yep. movie. Uh, Beach Blast with Cheetahs, the evil midget. <laughs> uh, yep. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out a few. I absolutely are. No, I am. So Kevin Sullivan disguised as a lifeguard. No, we're talking about terrible things, not the greatest things to ever happen. Sorry. Yeah. And and yeah, you know, that's yeah. Uh, on aside from videos, you know, we've also got things like Hulk Hogan falling off the roof of the Kobo Hall and then coming back to wrestle the main event that, a few that, minutes that was, later. That was the giant who fell off. Hulk I Hogan, Hulk giant, Hogan yes. no-sells every other night. But that night was the yes. giant's night to no-sell. That's right. But, um, yeah, we, we have found this video on YouTube. We will we will put this all out on our Twitter and on our, our Facebook because it is just it is just amazing. You if you haven't seen this, you have to see it because it is just appalling and and brilliant all at the same time. Um, anyway, this is this is a lead in to uh, our second match, which is two cold Scorpio v Scotty Flamingo, who. Um, is Scott Levy, who became Raven. Um, so Scorpio does his dance in the ring, not looking actually like he wants to do a dance in the ring. Um, Scotty Flamingo is basically the polar opposite of Raven, like a beach dude in pink and denim and that. Um, there's a bit of a mishap early on as Scorpio tries to land a handspring elbow in the centre of the ring, but Flamingo's out of position as he's probably never seen the move before. Um, he's then out of position for a drop kick, but Scorpio adapts it into like a one-footed tip kick, which sends Flamingo out of the ring. Scorpio then feints a plancher and hits Flamingo with a high elevation axe handle on the floor instead. Um, Flamingo gets the advantage. He drop kicks Scorpio out of the ring and then, then lands a plancher of his own, landing with less grace but more impact than you would expect from uh, Scorpio. Um, back in the ring, Flamingo slows things down with a reverse chin lock. 
Back on the vertical base, Scorpio lands a hip toss and a drop kick. He slams Flamingo, goes up top, lands a spectacular twisting splash where he seems to hang in the air for an eternity, which is something he always did and always looked amazing, just the hang time he could get on his aerial moves. Um, he then misses a splash in the corner and Flamingo gets a two count from a cradle. Scorpio gets sent into the corner. He vaults up, catches Flamingo with a spinning kick and a twisting leg drop. He then goes up top, hits the 450 score. Scorpio splash and gets the pinfall in four minutes and 30 seconds. And the finish gets a big pop before he even hits it as the crowd know what's coming because the 450 splash had never been seen before in US mainstream wrestling before this point. He debuted it in WCW and it was, he was the first guy on, you know, on national TV to do it. But um, yeah, what do you make of this one? Yeah, well, not only that, Dean, but you'll recall, and this could well be one of our other uh, two-person buddy assignments that we do in a future episode was that clash. It must have been the clash before this one. Uh, was it the clash right before this one when it was um, Ron Simmons and the mystery partner and the mystery partner was two cold Scorpio and he got the win. Maybe, yeah. yeah, he got the win with it. And not only did it look every bit as dazzling as it always is when he did it, and obviously, yeah, it had that wow factor that people hadn't seen yet. But you also had it capped with Jim Ross. Doing one of his, and yeah, you know, Jim Ross, one of the greatest full time, maybe the greatest, of course. Um, one thing you could take away a little bit, and, and this stands this day with you and commentate, he does overdo the shouty screamy at times, but there are certain times where he does that shouting voice and he, he loses his shit where it really, really works. So you think yeah. of like Hell in a Cell and things like that, fair enough. Uh, and one of the original times where he did that and it worked was when he popped for that first 450. And between his call of it, just how it looked, and as you said, the fact no one had seen it before in this audience, it just instantly made him. And as you said, because of that, he had the reputation that preceded it. It was now a bankable finisher, just like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this, this match was okay. Uh, you you can't you just can't help but be distracted by the video before it. But what <laughs> matters what matters is that this this potential star they've got they're obviously putting money behind him to do a video even if it's terrible and he's going over with this big finisher. Indeed, yeah. It's uh, I was just looking up by the way. Yeah, it was Clash Twenty One was um yeah Ron Simmons and Two Cold Scorpio against Tony Atlas Barbarian and uh, Cactus Jack. So that's why I had Tony Atlas involved. I needed someone to <laughs> to stare at the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also like, I'm just looked up on, on Wikipedia and it says Clash of the Champions 21. This was the last Clash of the Champions broadcast for legendary announcer Jim Ross, who left for the WWF, now WWE, in early 93. And I was thinking that's interesting because then Clash 22 tells us. This was the last clash for announcer Jim Ross, who shortly after this event was fired by WCW and joined the WWF. So, um, yes. But anyway. Because um, yeah, his, his first WWE assignment was literally WrestleMania, wasn't it? WrestleMania he made 9, a big yeah. He made a big thing about that. Like, literally, it's his first gig on the new job, and he's wearing a toga. Um, so we are back after a commercial break. Don't forget this is on TBS. We had breaks um, with Tony Schiavone, who informs us that the Thunder Cage is so big it will encompass the ringside area as well as the ring, much like, as we just mentioned, Hell in the Cell that came later. Um, we then have a recap on how Harley Race replaced the injured Rick Rude for the Thunder Cage. He explains 
um, how he got Paul Orndorff and Cactus Jack to wrestle each other on WCW main event in a no DQ street fight with race at ringside, almost like a qualifying match um, to make it onto the team. During that match, Cactus leaps off the apron and clotheslines Racer, who is on the floor for his contractually obligated bump. <laughs> Vader then comes in and attacks Cactus from behind. Orndorff then pile drives Cactus and he, Race, and Vader triple team him. So, yeah, no wonder he's getting cheered, as you say. Later on in the same episode of Main Event, during a promo, Cactus returns and attacks all three men with an enormous shovel, which um, is a great little angle to, to set up the. Well, I've, I've put it as the forthcoming cactus face turn, but it's yeah, it's definitely brewing by this stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, Dean. Look, look at look at the pop for that segment, and they've just replayed it. Yeah. He turned face on the you know. I mean, it's it's fair to this. It's fair to differentiate between someone turning face and then having their. Like, I, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the the moment that mints them. Yeah. This is this is. The... The the moment later on in this show is the moment that cements it. But can I point out to you when I said to you which one's Clash Twenty Two, you said the cactus face turn. Uh, I don't remember that. Ah, oh, you do. I've had five concussions. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, yeah, two of us can play that card. I've decided. Yeah, play the old concussion card. But. Uh... Uh... Hey, we'll, 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 we'll anyway, we'll, I we'll clearly have the, we'll have a look at the, uh, the the events of the main event later. I on. clearly, when I said that, I clearly meant the show in which he had turned face, and we get to see him as a face. Obviously. I see, obviously, obviously. Yes. So, match number three: uh, Chris Benoit v Brad Armstrong. This one should be good. It starts off fast. Ventura says that these two are coming into their prime after four or five years as pro wrestlers. Um, Benoit's in his eighth year as a pro and Armstrong's in his 13th having debuted in 1980 um, it then goes down to the mat with Armstrong working on Benoit's left arm and um, I don't know if you called this but there are definitely a few shouts of boring from the crowd um, Benoit puts Armstrong in a hammerlock Armstrong circles the ring quickly and uses his momentum to p- propel Benoit out of the ring he later flips Benoit out of a Boston Crab it appears that the more experienced Armstrong has got the counter for everything Benoit has to throw at him but then Benoit halts Armstrong in his tracks with a rollable Rocco style front suplex that leaves ben, uh, leaves Armstrong hanging over the top rope followed by a vaulting clothesline from the ring from in the ring off the turnbuckle over the top rope which is uh, makes the highlight reel at the end of the match and takes Armstrong down to the floor um, he lands a body slam that makes Armstrong bounce off the canvas but he misses a diving headbutt where he flies about three quarters of the way across the ring now Armstrong's in charge of the match Armstrong then goes to whip Benoit off the ropes Benoit reverses it gets behind Armstrong full Nelson's him and snaps back lands a dragon suplex for the pin out of nowhere in nine minutes 31 seconds of an extra Excellent match. Both men get a standing ovation at the end of this one. This was cracking stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. It took us while to get going. And I know what you're saying about the chance, but again, this is stuff that's been introduced to the to the audience. We're we're less than a year removed from the light heavyweight division experiment. You remember how that mm-hmm. uh Pillman Liger match went down. It wasn't all complete acclaim. They had to they had to win them over. They had to hustle for it. And similar here. But what was most interesting to me is that we were just talking about two cold Scorpio in the 450. And they also happened to mint 
Benoit's finisher, the Dragon Suplex over in a similar way, complete with Jim Ross going nuts for it. Because mm. when when Scorpio hit the 450 on Flamingo earlier in the show, they called it like it was your run-of-the-mill finisher. But obviously the crowds were happy to see it. Commentators didn't act like the same way they did the first time they saw it. Instead, the following match, they gave that treatment to the Dragon Suplex. And uh, yeah, Ventura in particular really was putting over just how they were doing things he'd never seen before. Yeah. And, I, you know, I always talk about, obviously being a commentator myself, I always talk about um, how a commentator, a good commentator should enhance the viewing experience. And, yeah, well, by doing things like that, it absolutely does exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And not only that, but there was also that other spot we were, that you touched upon with the the spring ball clothesline to the outside that had mm. Ventura going nuts and it really popped the crowd. And there was just little things here in what was otherwise a, a very fluid, well-worked match. You'd expect from two guys like this, obviously, but they did those, those little moves that really caught the attention. I think even the, and this, this was a Benoit trademark, not as well known as his finishing moves, but the whole, when he does the suplex and just drapes some stomach first on the top rope, that yeah. got a big pop because that had never been seen before. So yeah. so much to work with back then. Yeah, these moves. I mean, these yeah, these are moves come that they've they've. What would you imagine Benoit's picked up from Japan? Because as I said that was. Uh, I mean, that was a a move that that Rollable Rocker was doing in the eighties on British TV. But yeah, um, yeah, but obviously wouldn't have been seen in in America. Yeah, still fresh canvas though. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we then see a music video about the reunited Rock and Roll Express because if you remember, uh, Ricky Morton had become Richard Morton in the York Foundation a few years previously. Um, we have footage of Smoky Mountain Wrestling where they're tag team champions and it's announced that WCW has agreed for the Rock and Roll Express to defend the Smoky Mountain tag belts at Super Bowl next month. Um, we see extended highlights, and I mean a good few minutes of a Rock and Roll Express for heavenly bodies match from Smoky Mountain but curiously not the finish of the match so I, I don't know what the deal between the two promotions was here but um, obviously there was some sort of a deal at this point in time between the two which then went to WWF because I remember we did have we had The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels making guest appearances at Smoky Mountain shows yeah SummerSlam 93 I believe they, they were able to run this same exhibition there so within yes, six months of right. each other they're running the same exhibition Although maybe not, mate. Actually, was that SummerSlam '93 might have been the Steiners versus the Heavenly, Steiners Bodies, the Heavenly Bodies, which yeah. was also pretty damn good. Yes. Um, but but yeah, it, it didn't take them too long to run the same exhibition. But what really baffled me about this is, as you said, it it, it was quite a lot of footage, and this whole thing ran really long for the point of trying. It felt like they could have accomplished exactly what they accomplished here in 60 seconds. Mm. So, yeah, it dragged on long. I suppose you've got to remember, when it come, if it's on TV and not pay-per-view, you're always at risk of someone clicking away. And I'm not saying everything should be like three minutes long like fucking Russo era, but definitely don't drag out hyping up someone who's not on the show, who's not even technically a primary asset of your promotion. Try and, yeah. get, the, try and get the pace right. Try and get the focus right, eh? Okay, we go on to match number four, which is an arm wrestling match between Vinny Vegas and Tony Atlas. So, 
do you remember? Because this, again, this was a staple of when I was watching uh, WW Worldwide on a Saturday afternoon yes, on ITV. Jesse the Body's strongest arm tournament. Yeah, uh, it, it stood out to me just because it was so different. And I'll still learn about wrestling. I was only like a, a fan for a year or two at this point. But yeah, you see, they're doing this thing where, in, in addition to the wrestling matches with the one, two, threes and the submissions that you're used to, they're running a, a, an arm tournament. And a tournament of actual wrestling matches sponsored by Super Nintendo that I have vague memories of. Might have um, mentioned that in a previous show. Yes. That always stood out to me. I might have been the King of Cable tournament, but I don't know. Ah, uh, the yeah, the King of Cable tournament, which obviously was uh, finished on um, Starcade '92. So yeah, the the Jesse the Body Strongest Arm tournament was won by Van Hammer, but Van Hammer, as we know, is now injured. We're then told that uh, Vinny Vegas had complained that he's left-handed but had to arm wrestle right-handed. So uh, this arm wrestling match will be contested left-handed. Um. And I've still got absolutely no recollection, even though we've just talked to him in Clash 21. I have no recollection of Tony Atlas being in WCW. Um, I said maybe he's just a footnote, but uh, who knows? Um, it's not terribly exciting to watch a worked arm wrestling match, um, even with Jesse commentating over the house mic. But basically, Vegas wins it in the end using his left hand, and he then issues a challenge to Van Hammer, and that's it, really. So... Should we, should we move on to match number five? Well, here's the thing. Like, you, you kind of, like, whizzed past it, but I actually thought Jesse's really enthusiastic commentary kind of saved it, even though it probably should have run a much shorter, because uh, I suppose realistically arm wrestling contests can last a little bit of while and get to a stalemate, but no, if you're doing a worked arm wrestling for a wrestling audience, 60 seconds tops, maybe even 30 Jesus yeah. Christ, is this one dragged on? But yeah, Je- Jesse made it for me. And is it weird that if you know you could technically turn around and say this was uh, this this was booked rather smartly as far as arm wrestling on wrestling shows go? Because now you've got a, a heel who's coming for the 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 defending babyface champion who's not on the show. He's going to demand that he, you know, challenges him and he'll insist on being left-handed so he has an advantage and a valiant babyface goes lefty because he's being challenged. But he's had an injury as well, so he's not 100%. And then you build up to him after losing a, uh arm wrestling match of Vinny Vegas, you build up to him getting his title back. It was to actually sound booking for something that really shouldn't have been on the fucking show in the first place. <laughs> Or uh, or the baby face, so the heel is losing and then just turns the table over or smacks the baby face's head into the. Uh, that's into the table. that's why you expect Scotty Flamingo to still be around because I remember him and Vinny Vegas were up to all sorts of hijinks in a boxing match uh, um, against Johnny B. Bad and they, and they could have resumed the double act there, but but alas. Ah, oh, never mind. So match number five is the uh, new tag team of the Wrecking Crew versus Johnny Gunn and Tom Zenk. So the Wrecking Crew are Rage and Fury making their TBS wrestling debut. Rage is Al Green, not the singer, who teamed with Kevin Nash in the Master Blasters and was later a Nitro jobber as the dog. Uh, Fury is uh, Mark Laurinaitis, brother of Animal and Johnny Ace, best known on the independence and international scene as the Terminator, not to be confused with Crash the Terminator, who wasn't that Bill DeMott? I believe I think so, it yeah. Was. yeah. 
Um, presumably, this will be a showcase for the new team against two experienced guys who will make them look good. Um, the strength of Rage is being countered by the speed and experience of Zenk, while the Wrecking Crew regroup in the aisle. Gun flies over the top with a plancher into a double clothesline. Um, a miscommunication sees Rage accidentally hit Fury on the tag rope. Fury comes in, he gets arm dragged by Gunn in the WCW babyface contractually obligated arm drag offense. Um, his momentum is halted by a forearm to the face, but Gunn tags in Zenk. Fury lands a nice gut wrench suplex. There's a minor botch which uh, Ventura covers on commentary as, as um, Fury is thinking on his feet, which is all nicely done. Um, Fury comes off the middle rope with an axe handle, but intercepts uh, Zenk intercepts him with a kick. Gun is tagged in, is slamming both men. Gun gets clubbed around the back of the head by Rage as he comes off the ropes. Um, this sets him up for their spectacular finisher, which is when as um, Gun has, sorry, Fury has Gun in an over-the-shoulder backbreaker. Rage comes off the top rope with a forearm to the throat, sending Gun tumbling sort of inside out, a bit like the Doomsday device, to the canvas for a three count in six minutes and six seconds. What did you make of this one? Because I've got some thoughts, but I want to hear what you think first. Well, I didn't care much for it, but above all else, I have to say I was surprised by the result because even though I fondly recall this clash overall and I handpicked it for certain parts I remembered very well, I couldn't really remember this match. But I do remember um, Gunn and Zenk getting somewhat of a sort of push at some point and they had you know, one of the things we left off our list of cringeworthy WCW video compilations was their attempt to turn them into a, a, a proper 1980s babyface pretty boy team in 1993 um, so I kind of assumed I was going over here to, to be part of that but I'll say one thing is the, the finisher at the end was great I like that yeah, I mean, apart apart from the, the, the fact that because you just come down with the forearm, the actual impact doesn't look very much. Yeah, it, you could say it, the same about the Doomsday device, though, by that logic. I mean, the Doomsday device knocks, yeah, knocks you backwards off the other guy's shoulders, and this one, I, I, it was one to me. It was one of those. It, it would have looked better was an elbow drop, but they're too high up for an elbow drop, which is probably it's probably like why that move hadn't been done before but because the forearm smash kind of propel you you're taking the blow while you lift it up and yeah. it propels you down into like a dominator like yeah used yeah to do. so you are getting a double whammy I, I did like it and it did pop the crowd it did definitely pop the crowd because again like we've just talked about in other matches it was a new move that they hadn't seen but mm. i tell you i i just i had a real problem with this because I mean, it seemed what well, to me the the wrecking crew themselves. Yeah, they're the, they're a new team. You'd expect you'd expect this match to be to be a lot less. It, it was booked too evenly. They had a miscommunication. They had a lot of a lot of offense for the baby faces. They the the wrecking crew themselves. They didn't show any real presence or charisma. They didn't have very outlandish gear. I did, I think. As soon as you sit here, names like Rage and Fury, you are thinking, you know, something along the lines of the Road Warriors, because that's clearly where the inspiration comes from. But they, they didn't, yeah, they just looked like two regular, regularish guys with regular attire. It, it should have just been a short, one-sided squash. I, I don't know if it was because WCW didn't have much faith in them or, or what, but you know, they didn't. 
but ultimately they didn't go anywhere and I don't know how you know, maybe that was the reason why but it was it just wasn't to me it just wasn't how you should debut a new heel tag team yeah you had rage you had fury and you had their third member debut in indifference oh wait no <laughs> that was the crowd yeah, yes. I, I didn't care for this match at all. I, I'm, I'm just genuinely shocked. I could have swore that the baby faces were the push duo here. I, I assumed that the other two were enhancement talent purely because obviously we know they didn't come to much. But, yeah. but no, so it did catch all the finisher and the the result did. They, yeah. they drew my attention a little bit. And that's the best thing I can say about this match. We then go backstage to Larry Zbysko, who interviews Pillman and Austin, who are challenging for the World Tag Team titles later tonight. Pillman says they'll do whatever it takes to win. Austin says nothing. He just smiles smugly in the background. Was it just then... me, Dean, or was it, was it he looked off his face here? <laughs> he, he really did look like that mate you go to a nightclub with who's had something suspect in the toilet and, and just suddenly comes back extremely happy and hardly says a word. And he's just wandering around with a big, dull-eyed grin on their face. That's what Steve Austin looked like here. I mean, I couldn't possibly comment being, you know, WCW were, were, uh, were, were they were not testing people for anything at this time. That's as Let much alone as I that. could say. Yeah. Let alone that, yeah. Um, we then go back to Tony Schiavone, who interviews Sting about the white cast of the Fear Challenger at Super Bowl. Ron Simmons and Dustin Rhodes come out to join him, and the segment is literally over in seconds. Um, we then throw to Larry Zbysko backstage with Big Van Vader's team. Harley Race states that Cactus Jack will pay for putting his hands on him on the main event show. Race then says that they don't like anyone who's associated with Cactus Jack in any way. And so the Barbarian, who I believe had been Cactus's tag partner previously, is fired from the team. Um, Barbarian then picks Race up by the throat and lifts him up high. So Vader attacks him to save Race and delivers a short clothesline to Barbarian. Then Orndorff lands a pile driver on the hard floor. Wyndham puts the boots in. So they've basically eliminated their own partners, eliminated their own advantage. It means now that the Thundercage main event will be three on three. I love this segment. I absolutely love this segment. Um, first and foremost, uh, I, I have to defend it, I, and you because you got Jesse Ventura afterwards, and he's like, I can't believe I did that. They they got rid of a member of their team. But what I like about it is it, it still makes a lot of sense. In uh, you know, races being paranoid about the the additional war they've just started on another front with Cactus Jack. And so he's decided he can't be trusted. And so their own their own paranoia, their own hubris, their own flaws as people, as characters, has led to them shooting themselves in the foot when they think they're actually doing themselves a favour. Um, but the little things about this make me laugh. Uh, Harley Race is just brilliant in delivering these lines. I mean, Harley Race is brilliant in this entire show, isn't he? Oh, he's brilliant in every show. <laughs> but we have to give particular praise when he really stands out. And with this one, he he has uh, he has the interviewer move out the way so he can properly address Barbarian. And he does he does a proper oh senile old evil man saying <laughs> you're fired, which I like to believe. I you can't convince me otherwise that this yelling of Harley Race, you're fired, did not inspire 
five years later <laughs> when uh, the coach from the Waterboy movie did it to Bobby Boucher because he delivers it in exactly the same way. You're fired! And of course you've got say, the um, Vince McMahon one obviously become yeah, But go, for yeah. me, but for me, Haas's, Harley Race here is the spitting image of uh, the coach. I can't remember his name. Coach something from from the Waterboy who fires uh, Adam Sandler's character Bobby Boucher from the team for being a klutz. Um, and Barbarian makes it even better by reacting exactly how you would expect the Barbarian to react in this particular scenario by losing his shit, screaming in a primal yell, and well, then just, just immediately yeah. grabbing someone up by the throat. He just didn't yeah. put that. He's so on brand for me. So well, I love I, that. Yeah, what I love is the fact that he 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 just goes bah yeah and then yeah but and then starts strangling harley race and he proper like looks up to the heavens holds his arms out goes and then grabs him that that is how if you ever had someone in your office and you had to let them go please expect them to do exactly that because that is spot on that is what would happen uh it gets made better because when vader saves race and attacks him he then adds, all the while he's beating up Barbera, and he goes, yeah, you're fired, which had me in pieces for some reason. The way he was just echoing it, yeah, you're fired. Uh, and after he's deli- after Orndorff has delivered the pole driver, Harley Race somehow makes it even better, because they're, they're pulling all the bad guys away from the scene, and they're getting ready to cut, and all you can hear in the last seconds of it, uh, after he's done the pole driver, he's Harley Race going, give him another pole driver. Give him another pole drive. <laughs> this segment just is brilliant. I, I think that for me, this is how pro wrestling should be presented. Oh, Everything man. I love about pro wrestling and the pageantry in, in was segment. captured in this segment. Yeah, you're fired. Punch, punch, punch. But, going, well, the other thing that's like the, the just the, the, the wrestling logic, I suppose, or lack of. It's the barbarian's reaction of bah is like, as you say, this primal scream, like he can't speak English. Yet at the same time, he perfectly understands what Harley Race is telling him, which is in English. No, 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 no. It's not because he can't speak. It's you know, it's his emotions. He, oh, his he, anger. He has just he has just been fired. He has just been given his P forty five. You know, from from a hill tag team. I'm expecting that after after the, you know, he took Barbarian to the hospital, I'm presuming that Race followed up there and officially handed over the paperwork and you know asked him for any Harley Race or Vader branded pens or staplers that yeah, they'd borrowed yeah. him, you know, just to just to tie up those loose ends. Maybe Orndorff tagged along and gave him another pole driver in the hospital. I don't know. I can't confirm, but I hope so because that that would have been about as pro wrestling as it gets, wouldn't it? Well, we, we've seen Vince McMahon attacked in the hospital. With what is it with you and Vince today? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, it just seems that the things we're talking about, uh, yeah, the things we're talking about lead us back to Vince. Maybe you're anyway. right. Maybe he was. Maybe the entire Mr. McMahon character was inspired by Harley Race. By Harley Race. Yeah, he's got a point. Uh, 
We then have a video package showing highlights from the first two Super Bowl pay-per-views, both of which were excellent shows, both have been previously reviewed right here on Because WCW, uh, followed by a brief backstage promo with uh, Steamboat and Douglas, and then after the next commercial break, it's time for the tag team title match with the teams already in the ring. So match number yeah. six, unified world tag titles, the NWA and the WCW titles, as Brian Pillman and Steve Austin challenge Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. And as I said earlier, Austin and Pillman aren't the Hollywood Blonde stage yet. There's no matching gear. They just look like a bit of a makeshift tag team. Um, it's a 30-minute time limit due to the nature of this TV broadcast. And what makes me laugh is the commentators make a big deal of the fact that it's a 30-minute rather than a 60-minute um, time limit. But then how often have you seen tag title matches in, in the in the 90s go like you know, 45, 50, 60 minutes? Now, that is true per se, but I do appreciate the athletes involved actually playing into it and starting with a fast pace and lots of near Indeed. falls. Yes. So kudos is, to yes. them for at least dealing with the hands they were given, you know? Yeah, they are putting across that, that point that is being emphasised. So, um, yeah, as you say, fast start. Um, we then have um, Steamboat v Pillman once order is restored, which is always a good combination. Steamboat's in control as uh, Jim Ross lists some of uh, Steamboat's previous championship-winning tag partners. Um, Douglas gets tagged in. Pillman feigns a knee injury, but Douglas is soon back in charge as Pillman's chicanery backfires. He then tags in Austin. Still, the action is fast-paced as Douglas is able to maintain the advantage. Steamboat is tagged back in as the champions are making frequent tags. Pillman is facing off with Steamboat next. He distracts Douglas and with the ref's back turn while he puts Douglas back on his tag rope. Pillman throws Steamboat over the top rope and Austin slams him on the concrete floor. Now they're singling out Steamboat and Steamboat gets to sell like only he can. They're doing the classic tag team strategy of cutting the ring in half, keeping Steamboat from tagging out. Um, Steamboat then nails Pillman on the apron and Pillman lands throat first on the guardrail. He tries to tag out, but Austin grabs him from behind in a belly-to-back suplex and folds him in half. Pillman goes for a springboard clothesline, but Steamboat ducks. Pillman hits Austin instead. Finally, Douglas gets tagged into a big pop, cleans house on both opponents. Um, Steamboat comes back. It's a four-man brawl till Austin goes back to his corner. And as the ref's putting an exhausted-looking Steamboat back to his corner, Douglas lands his belly-to-belly suplex. But Austin comes off the top rope, cracks Douglas in the back of the head. He puts Steamboat on top of Douglas, which only gets a two-and-a-half count. And I was convinced that it was going to be the end of the match. Um, Steamboat and Austin then brawl by the commentary table. Austin grabs a title belt as Douglas rolls Pillman up in the rolling prawn hold. Austin smashes Douglas in the head with the belt, but the referee sees it and disqualifies the challengers for the illegal move. So Steamboat and Douglas win by DQ in 13-39. Douglas is bleeding and gets another belt shot to the forehead. Steamboat's then whipped with the title belts before Brad Armstrong, Chris Benoit and Two Cold Scorpio make the save. So disappointing finish, but I suppose it is free TV after all. That would uh, just lure people in for a pay-per-view rematch. I guess that's the idea behind it. What do you make of this one, though? I'll tell you what, Dean, you made a big deal going into this about how they weren't called the Hollywood Blondes yet and they were still dressed like singles wrestlers and they really weren't a team here. Well, this match made them a team. I thought the booking of this was fantastic. Mm. And, you know, the tag team action in general was the usual high standard from the sort of guys WCW could make tag team matches with at this juncture. 
but for me, this is a great example of, of a match without a finish enhancing it. This is when you do something like that. And straight away, you've got a feud for the tag titles and you've got a team. Now, if you remember correctly, uh, this this was such an influence on certain people um i don't i don't know it's firsthand but i'm adamant that this was the inspiration um about it's 15 years later and one of the one of the greater tag teams of that particular time frame uh featured two singles wrestlers um whose singles careers were kind of treading water as well weren't going anywhere they were thrown together in the tag team and they had a similar thing where they they wrestled the 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 tag champs as a thrown together duo, and people at the time thought, why are they they're, they're not like a ranked team? Why are they thrown together and, and challenging the tag team champions? And they and they lost, but then beat the crap out of the defending champions, and they would eventually from that they'd catch enough heat to mm-hmm. to become more of an established team, win the titles, and become one of the greatest of their generation. That would be uh, Bobby Roode and James Storm beer money, oh, and they followed. Yes. Their coming together followed this exact template that gave us the Hollywood Blondes. And you, can't, I've been doing this. You can't convince me otherwise. Line quite a lot in this episode, but this is another thing where I'm adamant that there was a little bit of let's go the Blondes with this when they did beer money because the, the the resemblances were uncanny but it worked both times and gave us two great sides at least in tna's defense they actually gave us that great team for you know a good three years and then and then it yes. elevated the two wrestlers into main events um as a result of it whereas you know wcw being wcw they uh <laughs> they they broke them up within a year because they didn't like them for whatever reason and didn't really do anything of note. And Steve Austin, let me check my notes here, went to the other side and became the biggest superstar in the history of wrestling. Ah, that's about right. Oh, yeah. And the uh, the greatest single merchandise seller of all time. Yes, but why would, why would WCW want to generate money? They like blowing it oh, by yeah. flying people in for no reason. Oh, dear. Or... or, or... To be fair, they also did the opposite of that, which was paying people to stay at home. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, whatever... I won't. I won't hear it that they just flew people in unnecessarily. They also paid people to not fly in unnecessarily. They did everything short of just taking a great big wad of cash they've withdrawn from Ted Turner's personal bank account and set fire to it. Well, do you remember the um, the uh, publicity stunt where there was a band in the nineties called the KLF and they. Uh, they had like one really big hit album, and then they just they just decided to disband and burn a million allegedly burn a million pounds in cash. No, I do not know about that. Ah, I love the KLF. Look them up. Um, it was they're the guys who were like the the Time Lords and a few other guises as well. But yeah, um, they um they they alleged they did a, a thing where they just like left music after that album and and just burnt all their money allegedly. Um. So, bit of a sidetrack there. Um, we then see footage of Big Van Vader recapturing the WCW world title from Ron Simmons in Baltimore on December the 30th, 92, which was two weeks before this event. Um, the voiceover states that there'll be a rematch between the two in the near future, although I don't recall this happening on TV or pay-per-view. Um, 
It was basically the end of the Ron Simmons as world champion experiment, which didn't work. Um, Vader's then introduced for a promo in the ring with Jesse Ventura. While Race is talking, Ron Simmons enters the ring and he says, next time Vader has his guard down, Simmons will put him on his back. While he's talking, Race, here we go, it's another Harley Race segment. Race tries to sucker punch him, but Simmons blocks him and attacks Race. Um, Race takes another great bump and Vader tries to save his manager, but Simmons attacks him. The two men end up brawling in the ring. Simmons spinebusters Vader, who rolls out of the ring. He continues to punch Race in the aisle. Vader then runs in and knocks Simmons to the floor. He splashes Simmons on the hard floor before delivering two more shoulder breakers, the move that won him the title. Um, Sting and Rhodes come out to protect their partner from a further beating. And I think with that, we go straight into our main event, don't we? Yeah, pretty much. It was a bit weird because you had two consecutive entrances for Vader, really, didn't you? It was, it was a bit weird, but obviously they they have to do the thing to explain why Ron Simmons is not part of the team. You'd like to think they could have maybe done it a little bit sooner in the show, but yep. alas, yeah, it's curious. Yeah, but at this stage, Dean, we might as well just change the company name to World Harley Race Wrestling and be done with it. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> He's all over. He hard in fact that that segment with with like Barbarian and Harley Race and all that. We we gotta get a screenshot of that for the uh, for our picture for the website. I oh, reckon. don't you worry. It, it was <laughs> never in doubt. It was never, never in, doubt. in doubt. Never in doubt. Brilliant. Um. So yes, Thunder Cage. So we've now we've gone from a four on four to. A three-on-two as Big Van Vader, Barry Windham and Paul Orndorff take on Sting and Dustin Rhodes. Gary Michael Gary, I'll get his name right in a minute. Gary Michael Capetta announces that this is the most dangerous match in wrestling as the giant cage is lowered from the ceiling. Um, It's, as you said earlier, Liam, it's street fight rules. Come as you are, no DQ, but there's also a cage and there's also tags. Um, The top of the cage leans inwards to stop people climbing out. It's the same cage we've seen at um, Halloween Havoc 89, which I don't think we've covered yet. That's a good show to cover. Yeah, we'll get Um, to that one eventually. Yeah, especially as it's in Philadelphia and the the hot new babyface tag team of the dynamic dudes get booed at every moment. Everyone's in jeans and t-shirt, except for Vader, who's in his regular wrestling gear for some reason. Um, The heels come out accompanied by a hurt and disheveled looking Harley race. Just Sting and Rhodes come out. So um, as we expected, it looks like Vader's taken Simmons out of the match. Having said that, um, it's street fight rules in the intros. Ross now says that it's still tag team rules. Um... So, yet yeah, Rhodes and Wyndham carry on their feud by opening the match. And this one is for TV time remaining. And you can tell they've overrun a bit. So, this is going to be fast-paced so everyone can get their shit in. Um, we then pair Vader off with Sting. Sting staggers as champion with right hands and an atomic drop. And then takes the champion down with a DDT. He hits a Stinger splash and then slowly drops Vader to the floor with a succession of right hands. Um... He does a, a flare flip in the corner, which maybe is a precursor to Vader doing the moonsault. Who knows? Showing a bit of his agility. Um, Vader then turns the tables with one of his vertical standing splashes. He takes Sting down with a top rope clothesline, but misses a second rope splash. Orndorff gets tagged in, goes to work on the fallen Sting. Wyndham then comes in and continues the work. The heels are in charge and have that three-on-two advantage to boot. 
Vader comes back in, lands an avalanche splash in the corner. He press slams Sting and punches him on the way down. It's all Vader's team now. Sorry, it's all the evil team now. <laughs> and Sting can't get out of there and tag in Rhodes. Finally, though, he is able to fend off Windham and he does tag in Rhodes, who levels all three opponents with punches and clotheslines. But then Cactus Jack runs in with a pair of bolt cutters and gets the lock off the cage and enters the match and starts to nail the heels with his boot. Well, it is no DQ, I guess. And I was there. I don't know if there's much of a pop or as much of a pop for this as I thought there'd be, because this is, as we mentioned, this is you know, cementing that face. Turn. No, um, Dean, there's not that much of a pop because he's already turned face. Already turned face. Orndor tries to pile drive Rhodes, um, but Cactus leaps off the top and nails Orndor from the back of the head. Um, he then pins Orndor for the win. So therefore, Cactus Jack wins a match that he wasn't even part of. Why? Uh, do you know what? I'd normally like to partake in this, but I have to confess, I am a sucker for this whole you know, a, a gap has been left on the team and someone else comes to fill it and the referee lets it run because, um, you it's know, no in, yeah, it's it's no DQ and you've got Jesse Ventura when they do like the, the commentary wrap up, which is another dose of thing they always do rather than finishing on the on the moment in ring, don't they? And he's yeah. saying in that, he's like, I, I, I don't know why they're counting the fall when it's him covering you weren't in the match and uh, and and Jim Ross is saying, well, we'll just have to uh, see see what the follow up is. We'll see if they the 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 front office allow it or something yeah. like that. He says. But the thing is, is the way you can look at it is, if if I was going to play the role of the hypothetical front office guy, I'd be looking at Harley Race's evil team, and I'd say, right, you guys have caused us enough chaos with getting rid of one of your own team members and attacking one of the other team and basically forcing us into false advertising and forcing us to trigger these cards subject to change get out. So since you're doing that and you're giving yourself a handicap match, then obviously it's anarchy rules. And if someone wants to randomly show up to replace the guy that you put out, then you've put that on yourself. And it's the equivalent of a football referee doing the arms out for play advantage. <laughs> I would love someone to have that job on a Monday morning. You, you'd dread Monday mornings, wouldn't you? After like a paper, you'd be like, oh, fuck, what happened last night? Yeah, especially what after... Rule on? Can you imagine after that WWE, not this year's WWE Hell in a Cell, but that one with Seth Rollins and The Fiend waking up the next morning, you've got like 157 missed calls and 200 text messages. Like, oh, what the fuck have they done? <laughs> you could have the, uh, the dubious falls panel. Dubious falls back. That'd be amazing. <laughs> but, on, be but, but honestly, in this instance, yeah, we've we've seen this device used by multiple promotions. I've always been a fan of it. If if the you know if the, if the Hill team is going to cause a situation like this, it's kind of you know poetic irony, isn't it, that they get their comeuppance as come a result up. of it. So so the I Hills, like it. Yeah. The heels always have to get their comeuppance in and the it end. May, and so, it makes sense here. And you've still got the singles feuds to run because we know we're getting Sting Vader for the title Super Bowl. We've now set up Cactus Jack and Orndorff to have their main feud at the start of this phase turn. Um, and then obviously you're building to Vader later on. 
and Rhodes and Wyndham, who have just split up as a team, and you can tell by their, their interactions in this match, I thought were really underrated. Uh, you could tell the animosity between these two who used to be tag champs, who, you know, who used to stand side by side in the war against a dangerous alliance. And Barry Wyndham's absolutely had enough of him being yeah. like a virtuous guy, and he just wants to go and start winning things and doing more. You know, Wyndham's sick of being done over by Lex Luger and done over by the Dangerous Alliance. He wants to start being the, the windshield, not the flyer. And, yeah. uh, and and that feud was underrated and their interactions here were oh, underrated it was well. I, well, I mean, two, just under two months from this from this show was WCW in London where, where Vader lost the belt. The, you know, the world title changed hands. Sting won the belt off of Vader. And I remember my favourite match of that whole show was Barry Windham against Dustin Rhodes. It was this tremendous brawl, Windham bladed. Never seen that in in wrestling live before at all. Um, it was it was just a really really intense brawl for you know, especially considering it was on the house show and, and it was a, yeah it was a great feud. Yeah. Uh, so you you had a lot in here. So for that purpose that we discussed at the start having everyone just come into this great big spectacle of a cage, it kind of works for the TV main event. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like this. It was, it was enjoyable. Yeah, definitely a thumbs up for me. Absolutely. And, um, and yeah, I mean, this is a good era of WCW. 93 WCW was a really good year for them. Although you say that, but you know, even it petered out at the end of it. But it, the, the well, yeah. But and even though the turgidness of late '92 Bill Watts was kind of, you know, a lot of his things were being undone because they weren't working. But one thing that stood out to me, for instance, is just how damp and dark this. You know, when they do the clips to the old Super Bowls and they've got the, you know, the WCW that we remember with the bright lights and the logos yeah. everywhere. And it makes you realise just what he'd done to that. And he didn't seem to realise that was kind of part of the, the... It was it was the thing at the time anyway in the 80s and early 90s. You needed a big glitzy product. And you can't go um, budget for budget with WWE on that front. Even with Turner Money, they just... They, they couldn't lean into like Dick Ebersole and NBC and things like that. But they could still put on a brightly coloured product. And they, people remember that stuff fondly. And when they darken the arenas, I think it had a really bad effect. And then, yeah. of course, for some reason, when you think things could go back to being a bit solid after Bill Watts, they actually fell off a bit of a cliff in certain respects in 1993. Some of the things were just absolutely baffling, including one of the other things we left off our list of strange WCW videos, Lost in Cleveland. Cactus Jack Amnesia. Because when when you have this face turn that happened a couple of days before the show, Dean, um, uh, and then you've got this great animosity built up and you're doing Jack versus Orndorff and you can go to Jack versus Vader later, what you really expect is for them to run an Amnesia storyline. Because that's what it needed at this point, wasn't it? Wasn't what, There wasn't enough heat in the rivalry. We need to do Amnesia in yeah. Cleveland. I mean, I've never been to Cleveland, but I'm presuming it's a fairly forgettable place. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's what we had. Amazing. Ah, uh, well, I mean, I yeah, I think the I I fondly remember the the Vader as champ era WCW. I think it's because I was a huge Vader fan. 
it was on TV in this country. It was accessible. And, and yeah, it was just, and, and, and I was 17 and didn't really have an awful lot to worry about and wasn't tired all the fucking time like I am now. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was good times. Great times. <laughs> Marvellous. Right, well, that brings us to an end, the end of Clash 22, which means so next time, whenever it is, next time we do one of these, it's my pick. Yes. Um, so I don't know. I have to have a think. Oh, oh actually, I know what I'm, I, I think I know what I'd go for. That's ominous. Um, but uh, we'll be back very shortly with uh, well, we have another another watch along. We'll have uh, we're trying to line up some guests, and obviously we want to do something special for episode 100, which is fast approaching as well. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, if you have enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can download the other 95 episodes we've done before this from wherever you get your podcasts from, or you can go to our website because www.podbean.com. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at because WCW. You can follow us on Facebook, um, which is facebook.com forward slash because WCW. We've had quite a lot of new people joined recently. So hello to you if you have just joined following us on uh, Facebook. Um, and I guess that just leaves me to say, yeah, we'll be back very shortly with the watch along. So thank you for taking the time and trouble to download. And on behalf of Liam, this is me, the Twisted Genius, saying thanks for listening and I'll see you ringside.